0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is, in one sense, the oldest possible story. But on the other hand, if those words were written, as is traditionally assumed, by Moses, then they are one of many creation accounts that are already circulating in both written and oral forms in the ancient Near East. Today, we begin our look at history in the Bible, up to the period of the Babylonian exile, and we are beginning right at the beginning. This episode is going to be extremely frustrating for many listeners, because... There is about to be a lot of hemming and hawing and maybes and we can't be sure's, and it will be a whole lot of details and not a lot of conclusions. Now, we will have much firmer data to work with in future episodes, but today is going to be really fuzzy for a specific reason, and after you've experienced it, we'll discuss Genesis and Exodus and their place in history more clearly at the end of the episode. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, can be broken up into three sections, each with different narrative styles. First is the most famous section, Genesis chapters 1 to 11. This section is a bunch of stories, all of which I'm pretty sure you've heard before, tied together with strings of genealogies that most of you have skipped Here is where the world is created, Adam and Eve get kicked out of Eden, Cain kills Abel, Noah survives the flood, and the people build the Tower of Babel, then get spread across the earth. All of these are paralleled in similar stories that we've already seen from Mesopotamia, which we talked about more comprehensively in the episode called Sumer in Genesis from a while back. The real kicker for these stories is that every single one of them takes the moral of an existing Mesopotamian story and shifts it, so that instead of favoring an urban agricultural society, the story favors pastoral values and ways of living. The two sets of stories clearly speak to common origins behind the tales, though who has the original and who has the corrupted version could go either way absent some sort of let's say, divine revelation, making things clear. That said, nothing in this section, nothing at all, can be squared with secular history. These stories are simply not historical in the way we understand them and they may not have ever been intended as history. There is a long tradition of biblical scholarship stretching even back before modern history, archaeology, geology, and cosmology started independently investigating the topic, which has suggested that these are poetic, metaphorical parables, pointing not to a literal creation account, but to some underlying truth God is trying to communicate to humanity. If that's the case, then we're best served studying them as literature, not history. But if we insist that the primordial creation accounts are true, there do exist two ways to accommodate that with our present understanding of history, though neither is terribly palatable. The first is to say that our God is a worker of miracles, and he's fully capable of overseeing the actions in Genesis without leaving evidence. And indeed, he can plant, or allow Satan to plant, contrary evidence in the natural world for reasons known only to his omniscient and perfect plan. This, however, is an answer beyond history. And so whether it's true or not, there is no way to indefinitely confirm it without the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Another possibility, though a dark and unpopular one, is that Adam and Eve were created in a world that already had humans in it. This answers some lingering questions, like who Cain married, and encourages the idea of a regional flood, not a global one, which is far easier to support archaeologically. However, it opens up some really nasty speculation that people who are not descended from the nations listed in Genesis 11, i.e. most of Africa, Europe, East Asia, and the Americas, have no souls and are merely human-shaped animals lacking the metaphysical image of God. There isn't much to recommend such a solution to the problem of historical Genesis, but it was advocated a few generations ago when... Attitudes towards the various races were rather different than they are today. As for the genealogies littered throughout the book, they provide no reliable historical information, not even about dates. There are some who claim that these particular genealogies are completely accurate and do not skip any generations. If that's true, it would in fact be the only set of genealogies in the Bible that do not skip generations. It's exceedingly common for genealogical listings in Scripture to skip generations, most famously with Matthew's Gospel listing only 28 generations between Adam and Jesus, skipping many names that we know of from other biblical genealogies. And we can't look to other Near Eastern genealogies, either. For all that it's often claimed that genealogies were just super important to the people of the ancient Near East, the genealogical listings that have survived from Mesopotamia and Egypt run the gamut from being literal and confirmable to the last detail, all the way to completely mythological and full of gaps. If all of creation truly is only 6,000 years old, we have nothing outside of genealogical numerology to support that. After the creation accounts, the story of Genesis brings us to Abraham and his line of sons, from chapters 12 to 36. This story is also largely outside the realm of history, though for a very different reason. As the patriarch of one among countless pastoral, semi-nomadic, or perhaps sometimes fully nomadic tribes, it would be rather shocking for him to leave any sort of archaeological remains. And with his extremely limited interactions with the major civilizations around him, it would be unusual to see him mentioned at all in the historical record. Even the mentions of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sites we still don't know for certain, are far from disconfirmatory. We don't know the names of the majority of Bronze Age settlements in Canaan, since many of them were destroyed and others renamed in the chaos of the Bronze Age collapse and the 3,000 subsequent years. One might think that a meteor impact slamming into a city or other sort of heavenly fireball would be the sort of thing folks would talk about, but interestingly, we have the counterexample of the city of Ephesus, called Arzawa in Hittite times, which had a meteor crash into the city right as Hittite great king Mershali II was marching up to attack the town. And despite this seemingly remarkable event that appears to have been somewhat destructive enough to let the great king just sort of march in without too much resistance, we've only actually got one written mention of it in any source, or at least any near-contemporary source, and this is only because it happened to involve a great king of the Hittite Empire. Had it not crashed right at the moment a king was attacking the city, We likely would never have heard of it, even if a vague and distorted legend had arisen a thousand years later to be recorded in the biblical book of Acts when Paul visits Ephesus. The only thing in this section which could possibly be checked in history is Genesis 14, which describes a war in which the king of Elam and the king of Shinar, which is the Hebrew term for Mesopotamia in general, perhaps. Sumer in particular joined forces with two other kings whose identities are not known for certain and as a coalition invade and subjugate a number of cities in Canaan. The details of the story which follow they're not super important historically because ultimately there was no point in the entire bronze age when the king of Elam worked with the king of any Mesopotamian power to send any sort of military expedition to the Levant. Either the story is broadly correct and the names of the enemies were changed at some point to reflect Iron Age political and military realities, or the story is just one which occurred in the Iron Age and somehow got pinned back on Abraham. Or, of course, as the radical skeptic would say, the whole episode may be just as fictional as anything out of Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. All that said, the general setting of nomadic life in these chapters does generally look like what we think Bronze Age pastoral life looked like. There are scholars who build whole careers out of checking the tiny details, and on the against side is a brief mention that Abraham was given a gift of camels, which weren't domesticated during the period when Abraham was alive. But on the fourth side is pretty much every other detail. Now this is... Less impressive than it sounds to some people, many of those details would still have been consistent with the nomadic pastoralists in any other future time up to the Babylonian exile. And while the compilers of Genesis would probably have been city-dwelling priests, First in Jerusalem and then in Babylon, there wasn't quite as much distance between the pastoral and urban communities as there is nowadays between, say, a New York City socialite and a Bedouin of the deep desert. But the presence and seeming reliability of those details do give circumstantial support for an underlying historicity to maybe parts of the patriarchal narratives. Anyway, we pass quickly through to Genesis 37, and our historical conclusions so far are pretty weak. If the narrative to this point is literal history, there's not much there to confirm them. If they're metaphor, then applying history at all is like using a hammer to drive in a screw. If the God of Abraham is a God of miracles, there is nothing here that is impossible for him, And if he doesn't exist, then the whole scripture is a catalog of madness and deception in any case. Once we move into Genesis 37, with the story of Joseph of Technicolor Coat fame, we finally get into narratives that intersect with known history. And thus we can begin properly applying historical methods to them. Joseph, for those who don't remember, was one of twelve sons. Son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. His other brothers were jealous of him and sold him into slavery and told their father that Joseph was dead. That's a great prank, guys. Now, as a slave, he gets taken over to Egypt, where he gets in lady trouble and thrown in jail. In jail, he starts to give prophecies, and finally the king of Egypt hears that there's a guy in the prison who can't interpret dreams. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and does such a good job of it that he gets appointed as governor of some province. A bunch of years later, there is a big famine, and by coincidence, he's reunited with his eleven brothers who come live with him down in Egypt, forming the nucleus of the tribe of Israel in Egypt. The story as we have it today is obviously composed into a form that we might call novel-like, with attention paid to character development and narrative tension, but composition doesn't make it a fiction. What we would like are some confirming details here, like a record from Egypt of a governor named Jacob, son of Israel, But realistically, the names of even successful governors and records of even multi-year famines are rarely unearthed archaeologically, and both could well have existed without archaeology ever finding trace of it. Of course, the story could be completely fictional, and the fact that the king of Egypt is not only unnamed, but given the title Pharaoh, which would have been much more common in the later Bronze Age, not presumably the Middle Bronze Age or some say even the early Bronze Age, when Joseph's story should be taking place, gives us, this gives us a sense that the story was either transmitted orally enough for the details to get corrupted, or was just composed whole cloth at a later date. But there is something strongly suggestive to the historian in Joseph's tale something that has even more plausibility to it than much of the later Exodus narratives or early patriarchal tales. You see, we are extremely fuzzy on when exactly Joseph and the older patriarchs are meant to have lived, because, of course, even if Moses was the author of this story, he's writing from a distance of at least a few hundred years in a culture where these stories are mostly transmitted orally, even if they weren't completely illiterate. But over in Egypt, we know that from about 1650 to 1550, the northern part of Egypt was ruled not by native Egyptians, but by a poorly defined and poorly understood group called the Hyksos, in what's usually called the 15th Dynasty of Egypt. Now, Egypt is not my specialty. See the excellent Dominic Perry's History of Egypt podcast if you're more interested in that part of the ancient Near East. But there is a lot to suggest that if any part of the Joseph story were true, this would be the right historical period for it to occur in. Now let's go through our story elements here. First, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, which is an ugly little tale, but frankly it's historically plausible in pretty much any ancient era. Similarly, the Lady Trouble and False Accusations, they're a bit lurid, but they're also pretty universally common in human experience, and it seems that ancient Egypt did have limited dungeons for prisoners. Next up, dream interpretation, which was a common form of divination throughout the Near East, and up to this point, pretty much anyone could write this as historical fiction without straining their imagination, even if they're generally familiar with Egypt, even a much later Egypt. But at the point When the pharaoh not only calls Joseph out of prison, but then also makes him governor over a province, this would be nearly unthinkable for a native Egyptian pharaoh. But if the pharaoh here is a Western Semitic Hyksos person, then it's quite likely that Joseph and the pharaoh share a great deal of cultural connections already. And it's likely that the rapid expansion of the Hyksos invaders into Egypt is creating a number of governmental vacancies, which are always a bit of a struggle for nomadic peoples to fill. This is the sort of situation where a man claiming to be inspired by a familiar god that having a successful divination section for the king could well find himself rapidly elevated looking more deeply at the affair which got Joseph in trouble in Egypt in the first place, if, as his name suggests, Potiphar, Joseph's slave master, was a native Egyptian official in the Hyksus government, of which there would have been many, then his accusations against a slave would hold a great deal of weight. But that same accusation against a proven diviner would, maybe, in the Hyksus court, count for much less all of these together turn the tale of Joseph into a remarkable and suddenly maybe more plausible narrative. It is still an unusual set of circumstances, but that's what makes it a fun story. But just because we've decided that this story is not impossible during this particular period of Egyptian history, that doesn't mean we've determined the story of Joseph to be factual history. There are Plenty of plausible, yet fully fictitious narratives, which have been written in both the ancient and modern worlds. Still, there is something undeniably interesting here. Almost as if, embedded in the Joseph narrative, is a collective memory of a group of West Asian pastoralists entering into North Egypt and settling there with the blessings of the Egyptian government. There are other possible ways for a particular tribe of pastoralists to have entered Egypt, but given how focused the later Jews are on their suffering in Egypt, why would they not have remembered or invented the detail of them being delivered into Egypt through war and slavery, unless they really did enter more or less peaceably? We will see in a bit that whether or not we nowadays believe that the people of Israel ever had an exodus out of Egypt it's pretty clear throughout the various books of the Bible that they themselves believed that they had an exodus. And if they believed that they had an exodus, then they must also believe they had an entrance into Egypt, since they were clearly Western Semitic people in language, culture, and ethnicity. And so that leaves us with a whole lot of wind and not a lot of firm foundation, which I promise is only a fraction Of the hot air blown around on this topic. The bottom line is that as far as historicity goes, we're left with a range of possible options. This is how we're going to end our look at all the biblical periods with a look at what is and is not historically possible. And with the story of Joseph in Egypt, our range is ultimately pretty wide. It is possible that the entire story of Joseph happened just as it's written in the Bible which is kind of amazing, given the historical difficulties with the stories that come before and after. Even a secular historian can give credence to the tale, waving the divine hand of God off as mere coincidence, yet leaving the facts of the narrative intact. At the same time, it is possible that the people of Israel were never actually in Egypt, and may not have existed as a coherent community, something that we'll look at more in our discussions later. And then, it is possible that some middle ground is the truth, that perhaps the Joseph story is the heavily embellished account of a real man, or that the Joseph was crafted as an archetype from the memory of Israel's entry into Egypt, a false person acting as the mascot of a movement of peoples during the Hyksus period of Egypt. History tells us nothing about this tale. Unlike the worldwide flood of Noah or the war of Genesis 14, we cannot point at any part of it and say that this is strictly impossible, or even highly unlikely. At the same time, without actually finding some papyrus discussing Governor Joseph, son of Israel, and that would also need pretty great detail to tell us that it's not just a coincidence, history can't really confirm that Joseph existed. For those having trouble with this, read up on the Egyptian story of Sinue, spelled S-I-N-U-H-E, for an example of another similarly well-composed story set in around the same time period, which Egyptologists also debate whether or not is based on a true story. But following the tale of Joseph, we have a pretty abrupt time skip in the narrative, the last line of genesis 50 reads so joseph died being a hundred and ten years old they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in egypt then exodus one begins with a note that jacob joseph's father ended his life with twelve sons and seventy total living descendants And that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. But then, right away, we get to the heart of the next story. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. What this is glossing over is almost certainly the fall of the 15th dynasty and the expulsion of the Hyksos from Egypt. At the end of the second intermediate period of Egyptian history, way down in the southern city of Thebes, a series of native-born Egyptian rulers managed to retake the northern part of the country and reunite Egypt once again. In Egyptian history, this is naturally regarded as a great triumph, but of course this came at the expense of the western Semitic groups who had conquered the land previously. Now, history books will usually tell you that the Hyksos were at this point defeated and expelled from Egypt. But the realities of ancient conflict are that while rulers may have found some other place to live, or just stopped living altogether, the vast majority of the regular Semitic peoples had nowhere to go, and were likely treated very poorly given how violent, vindictive, and destructive this particular conflict was, on top of just how rough ancient war was in general. The Egyptians destroyed many records and monuments from the Hyksus period, which both shows us their rage and makes it even less likely we'll ever find a record of a Governor Joseph from this period. In this context, it makes a great deal of sense how the people of Israel, now a whole population within Egypt, could go from something like citizen under the Semitic government to slave prisoners of war under the reconquering Egyptian regime. The conditions of slavery are remembered as harsh, and most popularly focuses on the brickmaking. But there's also a mention of their work in the fields, and most likely the pace of life for the Hebrew slaves was quite similar to that of the poor laborers of the rest of the Near East. The idea that they were in mud pits up to their knees for 50 years at a time is almost certainly incorrect. And it isn't consistent with the biblical texts. It isn't logistically sound, and it isn't how slavery worked in general in this period. The Hebrews, like all other Egyptian slaves, were assigned agricultural work areas, either fields to till or flocks to maintain, quite possibly... The flocks would be more predominant among the Hebrews because they were generally a culturally pastoral people. Either way, from this, they would have been allowed to keep a certain amount for themselves and then had the rest taken, much like taxes, but somehow more oppressive. Then, during certain times a year, they would have been summoned for corvée labor in which they would build things for the government. Now, this was actually an obligation for all Egyptians, slave and free, though the slaves would presumably be tasked with the less pleasant work and assigned for longer durations. Now, like many of you, my mental picture of the Hebrew captivity is one of Charlton Heston covered in mud. The truth is that those pits would have been only part of the life of the Hebrew slave, and that life in general would have looked very similar for a poor laborer anywhere in the Middle East. Now, the difference, I say again, it's the amount of taxation, the amount of corvée labor, the lack of free choice, and probably various social stigmas and controls. Over 400 years, or however long the captivity period was, they would have been assigned to a wide variety of tasks. Now, not one of these tasks would have involved building pyramids. The Bible never says the Jews built the pyramids, and the pyramids would have been ancient and mysterious even to the Egyptians themselves by this point, having been built a good thousand years earlier. But the text does say they built the cities of Python and Ramesses, sometimes Pyramesses, which probably means that these were the tasks assigned to them in the generations of Moses and prior. Now, this helps us date the Exodus better than pretty much anything else in the text. Python means House of Atom, and actually there were a number of places in Egypt with that name, so it doesn't actually help us all that much. Ramesses, however, is Pi-Ramses or the House of Ramses, built by Ramses the Great as the royal capital in the mid-1200s BCE. Now, the detail of pi Ramses is interesting, since the site of the city is very close to the old city of Avaris. It makes a lot of sense that if the Hebrews had entered into the general area during the Hyksos period, then they would probably have been in that general area when they were conquered, and then they would stay in that general area during bondage. Had Ramses built his capital somewhere else, He probably would have used some other slave population to do the work, but here he worked with Israelite slaves just because they were in the neighborhood. Similarly, there may be a town called the House of Atom not too far southeast of Pyramises, though the dating and details on that one are a bit hard to pin down. The towns were not built exclusively by slave labor, It would have been a mix of hired craftsmen, free Egyptians paying their taxes in the form of corvy labor, and, of course, slaves. The bricks, though, that's a job that it would be passed on to the lowest part of society. And thus, the picture of Egyptian slavery in the construction of the city of pi Ramses is one that accords quite well with history. Really, given how close things look to to what we know of Egyptian slavery in general, our options for this chapter are pretty much either that it generally represents the conditions of the Israelite slaves in this period, or that it's a representation of slaves in general, but that there were no Israelites yet. It was someone else who did all that miserable brickmaking, and the Hebrews took credit for it when writing their mythic history later on. Still, that's a story told mostly in just a few short, not really specific lines. What comes next is the birth narrative of Moses, and it has to be said right at the front that the idea of a baby floating in a basket down a river is one which appears multiple places in Near Eastern and later in Greek literature. The closest parallel we know of to the Moses story, which was 100% 100% definitely composed before Moses is the tale of Sargon of a Cad, which we looked at way back in episode 17. But for all that this gets discounted as a literary trope, which it may well be in many cases, it should also be remembered that this trope exists because women really were putting babies in rivers in the ancient Near East. Poverty, shame, war, persecution, slavery, or a million other things could convince a woman in the ancient world, just as in the modern world, that she cannot take care of her new baby. And even for the desperate, it's really hard to kill your baby outright. But to put the child in the hands of your god through the culturally known method of building a little floating reed basket and floating the baby down the river Well, that's a little bit different, isn't it? Maybe the god will spare it. They spare the god spared Sargon, the god spared Moses. We've heard a bunch of stories of babies just like that. Maybe I'm going to try it. As with Sargon, Moses as a basket baby allows him to be raised in one kind of environment while secretly having another origin, which makes for a good story we will never find historical evidence for the basket story. We wouldn't expect there to be any outside the narrative itself, but the tale it's attached to, a culling of slave children and of a prince named Moses, those are aspects of the tale that might leave evidence. We don't see large groups of slave children being culled in the written record, really anywhere in the Near East. However, we do see slaughters associated with rebellions, and history is full of Hebrew rebellions which the Bible only hints at or skips over completely. While victories, and sometimes the slaughter following them, are commonly recorded in Near Eastern history, rebellions are much more embarrassing and usually only mentioned when they're significant enough to really challenge a ruling king. A mere slave uprising which causes Pharaoh to take notice could well end in a massacre that pushes a young Hebrew mother to abandon her child. And the Bible is not shy to simply omit embarrassing things, as we'll see later on. We rebelled and got slaughtered is a bit rough to write down, but Pharaoh was scared and started killing babies, while technically the same thing has a bit of a different feel to it, does it not? As for Moses himself, this is a common enough element in Egyptian names. There are plenty of Egyptians named Ah Ra-Mosa, Ah-Mosa, Ka-Mosa, meaning the god Ra, or the moon god Ah, or the soul Ka, is born. Moses, then, bears an Egyptian theophoric name with no theophoric element, meaning just is born. Did a later redactor, or Moses himself, upon entering into covenant with God, remove the pagan deity from his name? If Moses is a fictional character, why is his name so awkward when so many other parts of the Bible have such conveniently named figures? If he was a literal figure, we rarely hear about the lesser children of the Pharaoh's court, and he could be one of many recorded nobles with Moses in their name, or he could well have gone unrecorded in surviving documents. His story itself, up to the actual exodus, is entertaining, but far from completely impossible. And we're left again with the full range of possibilities, from literal truth to complete fantasy, and everything in between. Now Moses grows up, he has some adventures, then he walks up to Pharaoh to demand the release of the Hebrew slaves. This is the famous let my people go, accompanied with the even more famous ten plagues. From an historical standpoint, for the ten plagues as written to fall upon all of Egypt in a brief span of time without any mention of it, it's not impossible. There are major plagues that go almost completely unmentioned in the sources. For example, there was a famous 20-year-long plague that hit the Hittite Empire under King Mershali, for which our main explicit source is a series of prayers that the royal family wrote down. Yet it may have killed as much as a third to a half of everyone in the empire not that long before the story of Moses should have happened. Ancient history is absolutely full of missing documents, especially when events make a ruler look bad. But still, it's much easier to believe that ten plagues fell upon a localized region around the capital, which is why the Israelite communities were spared the plagues, or that the entire story is a parable of Yahweh's power against the Egyptian gods. Still, it is entirely possible that the plagues did happen, Both in modern times and in the narrative themselves, there are those who hunt for purely secular explanations of all the plagues, using that as an excuse to accept the narrative as true, but to deny the power of the God of Israel. Now, to my ears, these all sound a bit convoluted. It's easier for me to either accept the miraculous power of God, or to simply deny that the narrative and its God are true at all. But smarter people than me have spent a good deal of energy speculating about naturalistic causes for each plague, or all ten in sequence. So historically speaking, the plagues could have happened, they could have been exaggerated, they could have been metaphors, or they could be mere fictions. All of these are entirely possible based on the evidence we have. And then the Israelites, plus a bunch of others, do manage to escape bondage, and Moses parts the waters. Note that Moses did not part the Red Sea, as is commonly believed. This has long been acknowledged as a misreading of the biblical text, and makes no sense in the context of the rest of their journey. The actual story is far more interesting. There existed a direct route from Egypt into Canaan, which ran along the Mediterranean coastline. The biblical narrative specifically mentions this, and specifically mentions that they're avoiding this route. It's too heavily defended, and they can't enter Canaan anyway, because that's not how you escape Egypt under the kingship of Ramses. It's still Egyptian territory, and they're escaping Egypt. So instead, God commands Moses to camp out by the sea, and gives a bunch of place names, only some of which can be identified confidently nowadays. But of the ones which can be identified, it's clear that God is taking the Exodites somewhere around the south or middle portion of what is today the Suez Canal, and which was, in ancient times, dotted with large lakes. Between the large lakes, at the natural choke points, were a series of Egyptian fortresses. Hence the miracle of parting the waters. By passing straight through a lake, the people of Israel could bypass the network of fortresses at the Egyptian border and make good their escape into the wilderness. Much like the preceding narratives, we don't have a shred of direct evidence to prove a single thing in this story. For a person who wants these stories to be true, there are a million bits of detail, like Moses' name, or the names of listed cities, or the cultural practices unique to the Hyksus era, all of which seem suggestive. If it had been written nowadays, we might say that the author had really done their homework to make the setting come alive authentically. But given the age with which the first versions of these stories may have been written, it suggests a more direct connection, maybe even a core of truth. For a person who does not want these stories to be true, it's very easy to point out the utter lack of direct confirmation, and no amount of circumstantial evidence or protests that we wouldn't generally expect that much direct confirmation for most of this can or should ever break through a stone wall of skepticism? When approaching the question of where history starts in the Bible, we love to jump straight in with our own personal bookmarks. Does history begin with Adam, or with Abraham, or with Moses, or with Joshua, or with David, or with Omri? But really, this is two questions wrapped up in one when they really shouldn't be. The question most of us are interested in is, which of these characters literally existed as described? And that's not answerable without first asking, which of these characters actually belong to the study of history? Which of these can be confirmed with an assortment of evidence? The answer to that, in the current state of archaeology, is that nothing that I've discussed today is historical. The study of history cannot do anything to prove these characters existed. What they can do is point out clear errors in the details of Genesis 14, because there was no point when those named nations existed prior to the Exodus when they had a 13-year joint occupation of Canaan, or anything even vaguely similar, and cast doubt on the primordial narratives before Abraham because they don't fit in with what we see archaeologically. Beyond that, we have no answers, at least not in history. Now, your answer can be informed also by faith, or the lack thereof. But pretty much everything today that we're talking about is outside of history. Which I could have stated in a short paragraph there before skipping Genesis and Exodus entirely, but I think it's valuable to look at this anyway because many people do skip over this, saying it isn't historical, it can't be proven, and so there's no reason at all to think it's true. Many others skip over it, saying there's no way that anyone can doubt the truth of all this, because it's God's word. When really looking at the opening of the world's most popular piece of ancient literature, We should all be far more open to holding a bit of uncertainty in our minds, far more willing to admit that we don't know and that things could be other than we believe. One final note I will leave you with, though, is that the records of ancient Israel are 100% certain about the exodus from Egypt. Now, the details are often fuzzy, but across a wide number of different Old Testament writers in the different histories, in the poetry, in the wisdom literature, in the prophets, the fact of the exodus out of Egypt is probably the second most consistently affirmed fact in the Bible after the existence of God. The earliest individual components of the Old Testament are traditions of the exodus. Now that doesn't mean it's true, just that it was widely believed for multiple centuries across multiple writers. But when we read Aztec myths of them coming to central Mexico from the distant and mythical Aztlan, or Micronesian legends of settlers arriving by boat, we apply less skepticism than we do to the biblical tradition. Skepticism is valuable, but so is intellectual consistency. Next time, however, we're going to actually use some history to really start narrowing down our options. Now that Israel is on its way to Canaan, they're going to start leaving footprints in the sand. These are going to be thin at first, and there will still be a range of possible interpretive options, but those options are going to have a lot more possibility for harmonization than most people realize. So join us next time as we lament the depths of biblical innumeracy and have a fun chat about Canaanite genocide. Thank you for listening.